welcome to the House of Lords podcast and another episode of Lord Speaker's Corner. In this episode, Lord McFall speaks to constitutional expert Lord Norton of Louth. They discuss the role of the two Houses of Parliament, why people should care about secondary legislation and reform of the House of Lords. Here's the interview. Lord Norton, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to have this chat with you. You've made a huge contribution in the House of Lords, but tell me, who are you out with the House of Lords? Um, Well, out with the Lords. um, To some extent, I'm also what I am in the Lords, because I see myself as an essentially an educator. That's my vocation. I'm an academic. I've always been interested in politics, but my role is to disseminate knowledge about politics, to study it, to analyse, to research, and then to disseminate uh, my findings. So I see myself, whether I'm in the Lords, whether I'm in university as an academic, as educating. So that is my core role. And what I'm educating people about is Parliament within our political system. So I've always been fascinated by politics since I was extraordinarily young. Um, So I've pursued an interest in politics. I then studied it um, and then stayed in the academic world. Uh, So I did my first degree um, uh, in this country, did a master's degree in the States, did my PhD on parliamentary voting behaviour, stayed in academic uh, life. And particularly my whole permanent academic career has been at the University of Hull. The university very kindly promoted me quite quickly. I got my charity young age and um, I just stayed there and got on with that research um, that um, has always engaged me, fascinated me. Um, And so deriving from that, um, I've published a lot. I go out, do lots of talks, but I see myself, as I say, as there to inform people about uh, and help people understand the role of Parliament in our political system and more broadly understand our political uh, system. So even when I joined the Lords, I didn't see my role necessarily as a, uh, as a partisan figure to pursue a particular line, but again it was to um, contribute to debate through drawing on my own work, my own research. So. Um, my work in Parliament has enriched my research, so the work here feeds back into what I'm doing in the way that my research then feeds into my work in the House. So that empirical understanding of Parliament has helped you in your professional role as a professor of politics. How has that impinged on young people that you've been engaged with? Because I was a member of the House of Commons for many years and your name came up early uh, to me regarding bringing students in. And I've had a whole number of students uh, assisting me over the years, and it's been hugely helpful. So tell us about that. Well, I've been researching Parliament my whole academic career, so well over 40 years. And for well over 30 years of that, um, it's not just teaching students, it's getting them involved in the parliamentary process by running a degree that um, intrinsic to it is placements at Westminster. So students come down for, uh, it's a four year degree, they spend their third year on placement at Westminster. Uh, Since supplemented that as well by a further placement scheme for those of our students doing three year 
uh, honours degrees who can come down for one semester uh, on placement as well. So that enables students not only to study but to immerse themselves to really understand the institution from within. They can gain a great understanding through academic study, but it's not quite complete. As they always say, once you've been here, you've worked here, you've got a much better understanding, you understand the nuances of the system, how it works. And so that enriches their knowledge and enables them to go out into the world afterwards because of the, the skills they acquire, their understanding they acquire, and to some extent the enthusiasm they gain or they already have for uh, our parliamentary system, how it works, getting engaged in it in all sorts of ways. So they go on to um, serve as parliamentary affairs officers for leading firms, particularly our leading charities. Uh, some will go to work in the media, some will come back to work at uh, Westminster, some will stand for elective office. They mostly they prefer working for elected politicians rather than being elected politicians. So they gain a lot from it, enriches their experience, but then they go on to do things which draws on their experience here, enables them to do the sort of jobs that they do. I'm interested in the feedback to you after they've been in Westminster. At one stage in my life, I did a, an MBA part-time when I was serving as a teacher. And I was asked what the course did for me over the three-year period of study. And I said, actually, I think it transformed my view from black and white to grey in a number of areas, understanding the complexity of issues uh, in society. Is some of that feedback you've had from your students uh, uh, along the same lines? In part, I mean, the thing that they gain from it, I think, being on place, working here, engaging with politicians, how the system works, um, is partly they acquire skills which are very useful when they go on to take up employment in terms of, you know, interpersonal skills, which are so important here, time management, networking. The biggest development, the biggest contribution is in terms of personal development. It really develops their, their confidence, opens up... Um, avenues they previously didn't realise um, existed. So it sort of enthuses them in terms of what they're going on to do. It helps to appreciate the, the differences, the differences that exist within the political system, but on the whole, it enhances their view of parliament, if I think they come away even more positive than, than, than when they arrived. So they recognise you know, limitations, the problems, some of the uh, uh, difficulties that one faces within the Palace of Westminster, but at the same time, understanding the process, um, they really, I think, warm to it, they understand it, um, and they appreciate the work of parliamentarians. They realise the demands made of them, how demanding it is, and how much um, work that uh, members of both houses actually put into doing the job, that they are motivated to do a good job. They're not necessarily there for self-serving purposes. Now, this will open up uh, a wide area, but do any of them come back to you and say, look, we've been in Parliament, we've seen the House of Lords, how it operates, it's unelected, we should get rid of it tomorrow, Lord Norton? No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no quite the opposite. Um, um, if they come down here, um, they become quite positive about the whole parliamentary system but particularly the lords we get some students are very keen to work on the lord's side and and very uh, supportive but students generally recognizing the the value of the house so when back in 2012 the government 
brought forward its House of Lords reform bill, the students on placement uh, were, let's just say, they were not enamoured by the bill and they formed their own, um, uh, got together to argue against it using social media, of course, at which they were very adept and really did a good job and really extremely enthusiastic. So they tend to recognise the value added by uh, the second chamber. So some of them have been great advocates of uh, the Lords, haven't come across many who have had a, a negative attitude and certainly hardly any. So uh, in a few words, abolition. you know, what benefit does the House of Lords bring to the political environment and uh, indeed to society? Does it oh, bring I, any benefit? Yes, I think the House of Lords adds value to our political system and uh, in many respects we're extremely fortunate because of its complementary role. I mean, we're unusual, not in having an appointed second chamber, because quite a number of nations do, we're unusual in actually having a second chamber, because most nations are, have a unicameral uh, system, so we have to justify having a second chamber. And I think we do, because ours complements the role of the first. So it doesn't duplicate it, it doesn't challenge it. So the Commons gets on and fulfills its role, which derives from the fact it comprises members who are elected, they're there for a particular purpose, they have electoral legitimacy, they have a, a purely, well, primarily a clear political role, which is why they're there. Now, the Lords adds value by fulfilling tasks that the House of Commons either doesn't have the time to on, uh, or doesn't have the political will. To some extent, the two come together on, say, let's take delegated legislation. Very important nowadays, growing volume of delegated legislation having a major impact. Can you explain delegated legislation? Yes. Um, because we have Acts of Parliament that go through, and nowadays increasingly will confer powers on ministers to deal with the detail, so order-making powers. So an Act will often include a provision saying a minister may by order do X and Y, um, because you can't always put the detail in uh, an act, you need some degree of flexibility to adapt to changing conditions. So a minister will make an order in the form of a statutory instrument. So secondary legislation. So in other words, um, powers that are delegated by the original act to uh, ministers. But that work, the orders that are generated, need scrutinising. Um, so do they comply? Um, are they deficient? What are they seeking to achieve? Um, and it's, the volume has just expanded uh, uh, enormously in recent decades. So you need to check it, you need to scrutinise. Well, from an MP's point of view, there's not a great deal of political mileage in looking at the detail of secondary legislation. So the Lords engages in detailed scrutiny, has committees for doing it. So we have a delegated powers committee that will examine a bill and see, well, what order-making powers are included in it, what are the means for parliamentary scrutiny when the orders are made. So if you like the input side, we then have a second, another committee, the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee, if you like the output side, in other words, when orders are actually made, then scrutinising them. And the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee each week will have a mass of orders to scrutinise. Detailed work, um, going through it, I served on it for a while. One of the other members was a former law lord. Very good at really detailed scrutiny, reading every instrument, more or less word for word. Now, 
MPs are extraordinarily busy. The demands made on their time means they wouldn't be able to prioritise that type of activity. It doesn't sort of fit with the demands of an MP, which are to be fairly profile raising, if you like, they need to engage in activities that I tend to call look at me activities. So service on the select committee, particularly a popular one, foreign affairs, uh, home affairs, or you know, raising questions of PMQs. But the sort of activity that is profile raising, which they do necessarily, because they're elected and they want to be re-elected, but the demands on their time is such they've got to prioritise. Scrutinising delegated legislation isn't a priority. So it comes to the Lord. So the Lord's, if you like, does the heavy lifting that otherwise would not be done at all. In explaining that to some people outside, you've maybe got the retort, what does it matter? Why does it matter this? It's not changing our lives at all. Ah, well, mainly because it is changing their lives. Because uh, law affects everybody. That's what Parliament is here for. Government will bring, it for, bring forward the proposals primarily. It's government legislation that the two houses deal with. But it requires the assent of Parliament to be law. Once it's law, that shapes people's lives because it tells them particularly what they can't do, as well as occasionally empowering them to do things. So everyone's life is shaped by law uh, when you go out uh, in any daily business um, you're affected by the law of the land and of course the detail um, even when you're out driving some of the detail about what you can and cannot do may be affected by secondary legislation not just the primary act but then orders made by ministers so that is so important to the citizen and, and, and orders made by ministers sometimes called henry the eighth powers uh, they override the act by virtue of the pen of a minister. Is that correct? That's what the Henry VIII power means, yes. Yeah. That a minister is given powers to change primary legislation. Yes. Um, and that is worrying because normally primary legislation should be changed by primary legislation. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Lords particularly is very alert to that, to check are the Henry VIII provisions in legislation to try and prevent that happening. So if, if you could sum up what the House Lords does in terms of the law, it pursues good law. Yes. And what does good law produce? Well, I think good law is law that affects people in the way it's designed to. It's appropriate. Um, you can end up with bad law, um, which is measures that have unintended consequences or negative consequences. So we pass legislation uh, which is designed to achieve particular aims. Now, um, part of the problem has been that uh, ministers are keen to get bills through, they introduce their measures, and success has been gauged by, have you got your bill through, has it been enacted, rather than has it had the desired effect? And that's really what it should be measured by, is the law achieving what it was intended to? So again, the Lords has a role here, because each session now appointing a committee for post-legislative scrutiny. So let's, and it, that's something that plays to the strengths of the Which House. the Commons doesn't do much. It, it does sporadically, but it's up to the departmental select committees where they undertake it. And they are heavily uh, overwhelmed, really, with all the things that are placed on them, so they don't have much time. And if they do, it's going to be a fairly high-profile act that they review. Um, so in the Lords, there's a degree of consistency, and I say it plays to the strengths of the House, in reviewing law that's been passed, but having a look at, well, 
has it actually achieved what it was intended to achieve? And if not, can something be done about it? And I think that's an area where we could do far more. But it's an illustration of the type of work that Lords can do. Some would say that the House of Lords is just interfering here and we should just let the House of Commons uh, get on with its business. But you mentioned the issue of a complementary approach mm. there. So in other words, not doing what the House of Commons is doing, but also the challenge that we let the House of Commons get its business. How would you answer someone uh, positively on that, that this isn't just interference? Oh, it's not interference uh, at all. It, it's rather helping uh, uh, the Commons because of the demands on members' time now and on the timetable. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult to find the time to fully uh, scrutinise bills as they're going through. Um, and there's a political dimension to it as well, because when a bill goes into committee, it'll be programmed. But the focus will be on those amendments the opposition wants to be discussed to raise the issues they think are important, rather than, if you like, the actual detail of the measure and going through it um, consistently, which the Lords does. So it adds value because it allows the Commons to do that which it wishes to do, which is essentially a political role. The Lord's role is very different, which is detailed scrutiny of the provisions and making sure all parts of the bill are considered. So we can do that partly because of our composition, partly because of our procedures, both of which are different to those of the Commons, but in a way that is complementary. So it's not conflicting, it's rather helping uh, the Commons by doing those tasks which, if it tried to take on, would mean the Commons would be overburdened. Yeah, there, there possibly is a view that opposition, whether it be official opposition, crossbenchers, whatever, uh, defeating government, that's the exercise here. But it's much more involved in that, isn't it? In terms of amendments coming oh. to the floor of the House and been agreed by government at the end yes. of the day. Give us an insight into that. Well, I think that's that's the important point, that it is a lot of it is consensual. Most amendments are passed without a vote. So the ones that are carried by a vote or defeated by a vote, very much the minority. And people misunderstand it as if, oh, we're defeating the government, as if that's, that's the end of it. But by defeating it on a particular uh, amendment, what you're doing is inviting the Commons to think again. If they do and persist, the Lords tends to give way to that. So I think it's important to understand what's happening. It, it's not sticking its heels in and saying, you know, that's it. It's, it's saying, well, this is our way of inviting the Commons to look at this again. We're not, we think this is better than what the government's put in, mm -hmm. but it's up to the Commons. Mm -hmm. If it insists, we don't uh, persist. So I think that's a, 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 a crucial uh, point. But most amendments are consensual. One of the points I often explain to people uh, about the legislative process in the Lords is the most important stage is not one of the formal ones, a committee or report, it's the informal stage between committee and report. So members will table amendments at committee stage. Government may say, well, there may be a point there, but you know, not well drafted, or we'll think about mm -hmm. it if you withdraw it. Member withdraws it, then the minister with his or her officials sees the peer to discuss it, to see whether there's a, 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 the government could draft an amendment 
that meets the point that's been raised because the minister sees the argument. And so at report stage, we get lots of amendments, which are actually government amendments, but originate from points raised by peers earlier. So it's that sort of discourse which actually helps improve uh, the bill. So that's the more important part of the process than the um, more high profile, oh, there's been a government uh, defeat. Would you refer to that as a civil discourse because members are contributing from their expertise, their experience out with here. Oh, absolutely. I remember when the House of Lords uh, reform bill was being discussed by the joint committee I served on it, Lord Sachs, the chief rabbi at the time, put in evidence and he drew attention to the value of the House, almost its unique role as facilitating a discourse of civil society. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't get that uh, anywhere else. So now that's invaluable in terms of who it draws together, the different backgrounds from which they come, the different bodies, to really ensure there's informed debate in a consensual way that really enhances the quality of the legislation. Right. So we just sum it up by saying that the House of Commons, uh, being a representative body, is uh, the body which gets its will, gets its way, mm. uh, and members are accountable to their constituents. Whereas in the House of Lords, we do not have constituents, but we're accountable to society. And accountable through uh, the Commons, for that matter, because it's up to the Commons whether yeah. to accept mm -hmm. what we put forward. We can't do anything uh, on our own. It's up to persuading the Commons to go along with us. So the Commons can get the end it wants, we can't without the support of the Commons. And the difference between the two I characterise usually is the Commons uh, determines the um, ends of legislation, so it determines the principle. This is what we want to achieve. The Lords doesn't challenge that, so hence we don't vote on second reading of uh, government bills if they're in the manifesto, and in practice we don't generally vote on any government bill on second reading. So we don't challenge the principle, we debate it, we don't challenge it. So the Commons determines the ends of legislation, the House of Lords focuses on the means. So how can the measure be improved? Is it fine as it stands? Could it be bits of it be redrafted, bits added that actually enhances the measure? So that's our role. We're not challenging fundamentally the Commons, yeah. which is entitled to get its way. So, so the Commons is assertive, but the Lords uh, seeks justification for oh, the measures. Uh, yes, and it complements it because of the way we operate, which is very different. And as you've touched on, there's a very different culture in the two houses. In the House of Commons, there's a culture of assertion. Mm -hmm. Government knows it'll be normally be able to get its way. In the House of Lords, it's a culture of justification. Mm -hmm. So uh, government's got to persuade the rest of the House that what it wants to achieve is desirable. So it has to, ministers have to engage. They can't simply rely on their own side to get a measure through. Uh, and I think that's extremely valuable because in the Commons, you're, you, are, you have two sides facing one another. They see one another as the other side, their opponents. And that shapes debate. It's one side versus the other. I think in the Lords, it's not one side versus the other. It's debate that mm. focuses on the minister mm. to influence the minister and uh, the government's stance on that particular measure. Now you've always been interested in reform of the House of Lords. Why is reform so important? And only very recently you had a private member's bill uh, looking at the House of Lords mm. Appointments Committee and others. Tell us about that and why the need for reform. Well I think there's a need for change to strengthen the institution. I mean I always follow 
Edmund Burke, who argued a state without the means of some change is without the means of its own conservation. So you look at how you work, can it be improved? So the value we add could be strengthened by making some uh, adjustments to um, how we operate. Um, some of those, some changes can be achieved within the house itself, as you know, because you were largely responsible for reforming the committee system in the house. And that's really been valuable to the work it does. Other changes require legislation to affect the powers of the house, to affect the composition in a way that enables it to fulfill its function and to enhance its uh, public reputation. Because there has to be trust in the institution if it's to do its job effectively. So we have a challenge there, not least because people don't understand the Lords and because some of our processes or uh, the means by which members are appointed to the House do deserve to be uh, reformed. So can you sum up for me then your outside interests, your contribution here and how that adds value to the political process? Well, insofar as I make a contribution, that's for others really to determine, but it's, it's my research interest, my background, my studies of the Constitution and, and Parliament within that. So that's what I sort of bring to bear to the institution to identify ways in which Parliament itself could be uh, strengthened, uh, building on its existing performances, existing procedures, um, in order to enable it to do better that which it does well, but certainly in the case of the Lords, um, we could build on that to be more efficient, perhaps more effective, in complementing the work of the First Chamber. So my role is part internal in uh, uh, trying to persuade members how to uh, achieve that. And more broadly, my role as an educator is partly educating members, uh, but educating people outside about the role of Parliament and within that the role of the Lords. Um, people don't, quite often don't fully understand Parliament, they quite often confuse it with government. Within Parliament, the bit they least understand is the role of uh, the House of Lords. So when people do know about it, they tend to be quite supportive. If one looks at the evidence submitted to the Royal Commission on House of Lords reform back in 2000, those who knew most about the Lords were most supportive of it, wanting to maintain it largely in its uh, current form with some uh, changes. It's the people who know least about it tend to be the ones who are most critical of it. But in order for people to make a decision, they really need to have some knowledge of it rather than speaking from a position of ignorance. So my role, I see, is to go out there and explain what is the role of the Lords? How does it operate? It's up for people to reach their own conclusions. But I'm keen to ensure they do it from an informed basis. And so it's partly talking to wider audiences through different media and also do through lots of uh, visits to schools, not least through the Learn with the Lords programme that we have here, but also independent of that, get invited to quite a number of schools to go and talk about the role of Parliament. So I think that's uh, extremely important. More broadly, we need reform to ensure that citizenship, citizenship education is an important part of what schools are doing. It's in the curriculum, but there's no great incentive at the moment for schools to take it seriously. It doesn't contribute to league tables and things like that. So 
I think we need to be banging the drum, making the case for the resources to be given to schools to actually teach citizenship education, so at least that young people will be informed about our political system and why it's important to them. I say they can make up their own minds, but uh, educating them about it, I think, is absolutely um, crucial. Um, and they benefit from understanding their own system, uh, how it operates, but also what they can contribute to it. Lord Norton, it's not all doom and gloom. Let's lighten it up. You know, give us your best memories. Oh, um, how long have you got, I think, is the response there. <laughs> um, because the great thing about the Lords is because of who sits in it, you get some really fascinating, informed uh, debates. Um, and I'll be in the chamber, perhaps not intended to be there that long, because it's not a subject I know about, but I start listening and realise, well, these are the experts. You're in awe of them because of what they know. And I end up sitting there for ages because it's so educative. Uh, listening to them, so there have been some fantastic uh, speeches. I mean, there have been some lighter moments because some peers um, can be quite humorous, um, some can be quite long, um, but fortunately we tend to time limit uh, speeches, So, um, which again I think is a great benefit because you hear a series of short contributions from people who know what they're talking about. It's really uh, engaging and then we do have some <coughs> members, as you know, um, who um, perhaps get to their feet um, quite frequently. Um, uh, <laughs> but, um, and some, uh, uh, there are some uh, moments that of course uh, are captured on camera and gone viral. You remember we had a uh, late Baroness now, Baroness Trumpington, who was quite a character. Yes, I and do of course served I was in, there at the time. Yeah, served in Bletchley during the Second World War. So Not quite, Bletchley, by the way, in the House of Lords. Oh yes, <laughs> quite. Um, uh, so, uh, but she was quite a character and could put herself forward. And of course, famously, when Tom King was yeah. stood beside her talking about, well, some of us perhaps are a bit past it, like Baroness Trumpington, and she gave him a two-fingered salute, yeah. um, and that went viral. The Churchill salute in reverse. Yes, ex oh, very much so. <laughs> um, so, uh, as someone said to me the next day, do you think Baroness Trumpington realised she's gone viral? <laughs> um, so, uh, you get some really good moments at the dispatch box. I remember when one, one minister, many years ago, we were discussing um, the use of mobile phones on aeroplanes, because um, whether it interfered and things like that. And the minister at the time um, was, oh, Lord Whitty responding, and someone, I remember it was coming towards the end, so someone just said, well, never mind about phones on planes, what about on terra firma? And there was a delay before Lord Whitty got to the dispatch box to respond, because he obviously hadn't heard what was said. So eventually when he came to the dispatch box and realised, whoops, there's been a delay, I'd better explain it, um, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, my lords, I thought terra firma might be some obscure airline. <laughs> it was, um, so they're very good at, you know, me, uh, gaining the mood of the house and uh, uh, things like that. And again, uh, it's another Baroness Trumpington story. Uh, I remember once many years ago, it's when um, Lord Williams was a minister and was asked some question about uh, mistreatment of, I think it was apes um, um, that had to be taken off some, perhaps a circus, uh, and, think, and this became a bit of a story, so there'd been a question about it. And Lord Williams, I think, was replying uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek and said, well, yes, we've had these, I think it was apes, anyway, said, uh, the lead ape 
Mary, she's been taken away. She's now in a, uh, with a troop of apes and my lords, she seems to be with, she's in with uh, another ape called Edward and they seem to be getting on rather well together. Before anybody could do anything, Baroness Trumpington shot to her feet and declared, my lords, she's better off than I am. And sat down and we're all out well. <laughs> I felt sorry for the minister because technically that was something you had to respond to. So, yeah. um, so you get moments like that which just lighten the mood. And some ministers are very good at that sort of uh, response. Um, but more seriously, some ministers are very good at engaging with the House, really know their subject on top of their briefs, and really impressive. Because another value of the House of Lords, of course, is with question time, you've several minutes, now 10 minutes per question. So opportunity for several peers to come in, really pursue a minister, unlike in the Commons. So a minister's really got to know their stuff to be able to deal with it. And you can always tell the ministers that are really on top of the subject and really engage with members uh, and those who can't. And sometimes a minister clearly isn't up to it. And sometimes not that long after they cease to be ministers. Well, you mentioned that some members are too long with the speeches. Could I say that this isn't long enough, Lord Norton? It's been a fantastic exchange for me in understanding and your contribution not only to the work of the House, uh, but to proclaiming the work of the House outside and ensuring that young people understand the House. That's the very essence, I think, of good politics. So can I thank you for your time uh, on pleasure. that? It's thank a real you. pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. We'll be back soon with more from the UK Parliament's Second Chamber.